millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Three women, one podcast, and a whole load of badass. With me, Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell, and Emma Sexton. This week, we talk to Dr. Rada Bunt-Modgill about women's health, and we meet the woman who started the craze for throwing glitter on your boobs and is now an artist changing the way women think about their bodies. Underwear, armpit hair, many imitators, but no one compares. Badass Women's Hour XL with Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell, and Emma Sexton on Talk Radio. One, two, three, four! We're putting our medical coats on, getting our stethoscopes out, and getting... <laughs> I, I, I personally am writing a long list of all my physical ailments oh my that I'm going to ask <laughs> our next guest all about. Dr. Rada Muggle is in the studio. Hello! Hello, I was just laughing at that song. Yeah. <laughs> I love Nothing it. To do with us. I'm going to have it as my ringtone. I love when I looked at you, you just did this sort of massive, like, half eye roll. Like, <laughs> <laughs> this song's I'm been played a million times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, it's so nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you. It's the first time you've joined us. Tell us a little bit about you. What do you specialise in? So, I'm an NHS GP, so I work with patients in GP practice, um, and I do all kinds of other things. So, lots of campaigning around, particularly around emotional and mental health for children and um, teenagers. Um, and generally just try and get the message out there about kind of health promotion, preventing problems before they start. And mm. actually one of my real passions is about connecting people um, in terms of their challenges. And so we don't feel quite so alone because I think that's something which makes us not want to go to the doctor or not speak out about physical and mental health issues. So, yeah, just sharing stories, really, helping each other out. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of GPs get quite bad rap because you know, it's really tough being a GP. You've got 10 minutes to diagnose somebody's issue most of the time we're really bad and we talk to you about something else for the first nine and a half and then we suddenly say oh and just as I'm about to leave there is this other thing and you're expected to be experts in everything yeah I mean it is it is a challenging job definitely like you say so you know working through different problems trying to work out what's important and what's perhaps can wait for example um and you have to multitask a lot so you have to obviously be listening to the information but also you know hopefully demonstrating empathy and making Mm -hmm. eye contacts and making someone feel like they can actually open up to you and talk to you about some really difficult things and really personal things so it's definitely a challenge um but you know I love it and actually you you know you see you hear people's stories you you get it's a real privilege to actually be part of someone's story and for people to open up and you see people in all kinds of different situations life situations as well as health situations so um it's tough but it's good as well and when someone it sounds cheesy but when someone says you know thank you or you've made a difference it really does make a difference to you so yeah, yeah. and 
particularly tonight, we've got you on because we want to talk about the stuff that affects women most of all. So when you see women coming... Well, actually, I'd really like to ask you, first of all, there's the kind of stereotype that women go to the doctor more often than men. Is that true? <laughs> so I haven't got any stats on that, but I think I think that is um, definitely from my own observations, I think that is true. You see a lot more females perhaps coming more regularly, uh, perhaps more um, willing to open up about certain problems, um, more personal problems perhaps than, than men do. Um, again, that may be because I'm a female, so I get to see more more women and more women come to see me uh, but I think generally women are probably a bit better at looking after their health seeking help early rather than men and also perhaps talking about difficult emotional things I think sometimes you know men still um, feel that they're not able to or perhaps they've been raised with these stereotypes that they're not allowed to express how they feel um, and there's a lot of pressure on on men I think still to hold back and yeah. to not open up so much, which I'm hoping is breaking down slowly, uh, particularly with mental health, I think. It's a massive issue for men still. Where do you think the areas are for women where perhaps we're not as open or we feel a level of kind of, I guess, shame or fear around talking about our health to the doctor? Yeah, so I think one thing that's really struck me about women's health issues is that there is a lot of um, either overt shame or subconscious shame that is around a lot of women's health, um, normal bodily functions. So periods, for example, I think there's a stat which says, you know, any one time 300 million women are on their period. <laughs> and yet the number of times you hear the word period mentioned mm. in a conversation um, is is really, really few. Mm. So again, you know, why, why do we not use the correct words why do we use euphemisms like you know the time of the month or women's problems you know, all those things kind of aggravate this sense that we shouldn't be talking about periods um and that goes for you know things like endometriosis or heavy periods as well as just you know if you're not you're not even if you're not having a problem mm. with your period um and i think that's something we need to get much better at do you do you think also the fact that we're not necessarily talking about um you know, our, our health in that area could also be potentially damaging because then you kind of, you don't really know what's normal and what's not, right? If you're not having exactly. these conversations, so then therefore you might not seek help out. You might just struggle on because you're like, well, this is just how I've always been. I've always had that much pain or I've always bled that heavily. So do you think that contributes to that? Absolutely. I think you're totally right. And I think also, you know, um, we're not really taught very well at school or an early age about what our bodies, what our, the parts of our bodies, our vulvas are, or our, you know what what everything is. And actually, I still see a lot of you know, adult women coming in, um, either not knowing the language for what part that is, or feeling ashamed to say that word out loud. So I think you're right. I think it's about kind of making sure women are more comfortable and girls are more comfortable with you know what their body what parts their body are which and what happens and what's normal and what you should expect and like you say it's only when you know the normal that then you can go and ask about if there's something that's changed or or get help with that so I think that's a massive part of the problem going back to Samantha's um uh, story earlier about you know not being able to have a, a test because the facilities just weren't there Part of the challenge, and we've discussed it uh, on the show before, is that even if we were armed with that 
language, you don't always get the response that you want from the GP, which mm-hmm. then puts you off. Mm-hmm. And so how do we create more of a two-way dialogue? So a woman that goes in and says, actually, I think this is wrong, isn't sort of eye-rolled out as, well, that was a Google analysis. There's nothing wrong with you, which is generally, generally um, the sort of the anecdotes that we hear here. Yeah, yeah, it is difficult. And again, yeah, I can't comment on that particular story, yeah. but I think it's a matter of um, if you feel like something's not right or someone's not responding in the, in the correct way or the way mm. that you feel is helpful to you, then raising that as an issue at that practice mm. with the GP practice, finding another GP there. Um, there are lots of other sort of resources like different um, charities or websites, for example, where, for example, with mental health things, they have a kind of template you can download and you can write down why you think you might have mm. OCD or something else. So you can take that to the doctor to show them why you're thinking that. So I suppose my message is, is that if you do come up against a response like that, then take someone with you, get someone to support you, ask for another GP, raise it with the practice mm. um, and keep going. But hopefully, like I say, um, also you know, in terms of the Royal College of GPs and, and, and doctors and training and things like that, I think also there's um, an element of openness for training around that, for mm. example. So I think it's a two-way thing, but I think it's about... If you find it difficult finding someone to help support you, find a voice and continue with that voice until you get what you feel you need. Are there more younger GPs coming through? Because I think that there was a yeah, an epidemic of not enough GPs at, at one point. I have that etched in my mind. I don't know when that was. But are we seeing younger GPs coming through? Because I think that might also be a part of it, just a generational shift in how we talk about our health. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely, I mean, I teach medical students Mm -hmm. as well. um, And I think um, what I've noticed in their curriculum is that they have a lot more stuff now around communication skills, Mm -hmm. around um, diversity, Mm -hmm. around um, empowering patients, uh, around lots of sort of social things, community things, which, you know, weren't around when I trained, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, And the way they learn is also quite different. So I think there's definitely movements of that kind of coming in and and you're seeing that a lot more in GP practices. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, hopefully. And I think a lot of it is about communication and a lot of it actually I think is about empathy so it's around that person feeling listened to and feeling heard Um, and I think that makes someone really feel they can open up that's like we all want to be heard don't we if Mm. we make a complaint or we're not happy if we feel like someone's heard and responded then we feel satisfied if we don't then we go away feeling pretty cross leading on to that I I know you know over the years I've heard several accounts I've had my own personal experiences of you know when when people when women are going to the doctors and they they think they've got something wrong and they get turned away and they get told to try something a home remedy an over-the-counter thing and then they you know it's still not fixed but perhaps they've been back to the doctor three or four times in a row from the conversations that I have there's a lot of shame about going back to the doctor because you've already been to the doctor five or six times Mm. about the same thing and the doctor keeps telling you there's nothing wrong but you feel like there is Mm -hmm. Uh, and Mm -hmm. consequently then they don't go back to the doctor Mm -hmm. and it does become quite serious Mm -hmm. how do we how do we help women to to kind of not not back down to Mm. I I don't know something really intimidating about going to a doctor and Mm -hmm. you feel like a doctor knows all the answers and whenever I've been told by a doctor you know no it's not that I've immediately just felt like a it's got sort of a parent-child dynamic so Mm -hmm. how do we make sure that we are getting listened to and 
Yeah, well, I mean, hopefully, like, the old style of consulting you know, doctors and patients was, like you say, kind of quite paternalistic. So, yeah. yeah, I am the doctor, you are the patient, and I'm telling you what to do. Yeah. Um, very much so in the last sort of, you know, 15, 20 years, it's been very much more... Um, a sort of a doctor-patient relationship and trying to work through that and make a joint plan together and that's definitely what I teach in medical schools um, now to So there's, doctors. there's probably a general... There might be a generation gap with your doctor. Yeah, so, potentially. Okay. But I also think that, you know, if you... And it is the same when parents bring their children in um, with sort of certain symptoms, for example, that parent knows their child better than the doctor. Mm. That parent knows when there's something not right with their child. And so it's about... And I always say to them, listen, you know your child best. Yeah. So you need to let me know or you need to come back if you feel this is not getting better. Um, so I think, again, it's about if you if you feel like you're not being listened to, it's about raising out of the practice, finding another GP within that practice, um, finding someone to come in and support you with that. And I think, again, it's also about um, hopefully empowering women to say, listen, this is my health, it's my body, yeah. and this is my priority. And actually, even if someone's telling me something it's not right, I'm going to go back and kind of hopefully inspiring confidence they, they will be listened to, yeah. Do you think we treat pain in men and women differently? So I'm reading a book at the moment called Pain and Prejudice by Gabrielle Jackson, which is great, I recommend it. And in it, she talks about the fact that traditionally we tend to have underestimated women's pain and overestimated men's pain. Do you see that happen in the medical profession today? Mm, that's a really interesting question, which I've never really thought about. Um... Maybe there's perhaps is there I don't know is there a difference in language or the way women and men express pain I don't know because again pain is um it's there is an ab- absolute but again it's quite a, it's about perception isn't it of pain so again historically a lot of people have said women have a higher pain threshold than men so they will only complain above a certain level for example <laughs> um I, I haven't had children as yet so I don't know about labour pains or kind of giving birth but you know they're supposed to be on a, an equivalent with kidney stones now I don't know if that's true um but when I've seen um men having kidney stones they literally can't handle it at all so <laughs> so yeah that's an interesting question I mean um I would probably say that perhaps women from what I've seen women and men perhaps express their degrees of pain in a different way um and perhaps um sometimes men want a kind of instant fix and sometimes women seem to be more prepared to try different things i don't know if that's actually scientifically based but that's what i've noticed um we're going to keep talking to dr rada mcdill uh after this break in which time i'm going to ask her all about how to deal with my bad back the vampire strikes back badass women's hour excel on talk radio we are talking to Dr. Adam Muggill all about pain, shame culture around women's bodies, how we get the most out of our GPs, all things health here on Badass Women's Hour XL. And I teased you before the break by telling you I was going to tell you all about my bad back. Lucky you, <laughs> I'm ready Lucky for it. You. I'm ready for it. Uh, so actually, I've had a bad back. The poor, poor Emma and Emma had to hear me complain about this for nearly, I think, nearly three months now. Um... But I noticed a really interesting thing, which is most of the GPs in my surgery are female. And so I'm very used to dealing with a kind of female approach, which is like, talk to me, tell me about it, what's going on here. And for my back, I got referred to a specialist. 
And the first specialist's response was, well, I don't think it's as bad as you think it is. Which, I mean, was just an intensely stupid thing to say to me because, for a start, it was quite patronising, which always makes me see red. And I'm in pain, so my Mm. tolerance Mm. level for that sort of thing is very low. Yeah. Um, So I requested somebody else and wrote a strongly worded letter to his boss. And then when I saw the second guy, I said, oh, actually, no, it is quite bad. Instead of saying, okay, here are the options, what would you like to do? He was like, well, these are the options and you should do this. And when I said, well, I don't think I really want to do that, which was take huge amounts of painkillers. He said, well, why wouldn't you? That's what I would do. Mm. And I thought that's so interesting Mm. because there's no, I guess there's no kind of discussion there. It was like, I'm the doctor. It felt very much Mm. like I'm the doctor. Mm. I am telling you what to do. Go do. Do you think that, uh, and for me, that feels like a gender difference. That feels like a gender difference between seeing female and male doctors. Mm. Somebody who has come up through med school, GP practice, do you see that? Um, I, 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 I wouldn't say, see, I know lots of male doctors who are extremely empathetic. So I think it's actually probably more individual based yeah. rather than gender based. Um, and I think, you know, empathy is one of these kind of skills that we kind of learn as we're, you know, when we're little, when we're growing up, we mm. kind of learn to see part of ourselves in that other person or at least be open to that. So I, in my experience, I don't necessarily think there is a, I haven't seen a particular gender difference. I think it's very much individually based and, and how that person communicates and how they, how they, their own personality and also what they've, mm. you know, what they've been through, I think as well, because obviously life brings different challenges. And I think as doctors, although we, you know, obviously we, we try to be empathetic to everybody. When, you know, when you do have a family member or someone that you know who's been through something and you see a patient with that, you just you just have a better understanding from the other side, mm. for example, of what actually is happening day to day in that person's life. Um, well, one of the things that was interesting to me about this was that one of the key things they wanted me to do was take prescription painkillers. And mm. I personally don't like doing that because... I have seen people that I know take them for what should have been a few weeks and end up being a very long period of time. And I, and also, quite frankly, I appear to have very low tolerance for them. Like, if I want a great weekend, two cocoa while I'm sorted. I'm like, <laughs> I like this later tomorrow. You know. Um, and I, you know, I just, in the nice way, I can't, it's lovely on a Saturday, can't do it on a Monday, one's going to work. Um, so I sort of turned it down and got a very confused reaction. But then we were reading an article in The Telegraph this week, which was about women and prescription drugs. Nat, you, you were reading it, weren't you? Yeah, so the, the headline is that um, the journalist is, is talking about the fact that she has been um, addicted to prescription drugs for over uh, a decade. It's Miranda Levy and, and she's 51. So, you know, for the last 10 years of her, her life, she's been addicted. And she said, you know, the challenge is is that it's a taboo among women that they are ultimately popping pills every day to sleep, for pain, for depression. And it wasn't until she sort of looked up at what she was putting in her body every day that she realised that she was addicted and and needed these pills. And again, it's something we've we've heard on on the show, but also I think there's a growing conversation because of the opioid crisis in the u s that people mm-hmm. are thinking, okay, you know if we've been prescribing someone medication consistently for a period of time, might they have an addiction? Um, what does this mean? And I think the big question is going to be, is there an underlying 
addiction that we are not talking about or, or, or aware of. And it's sitting with women because of the, the cocktail of, you know, the antidepressants and uh, anxiety and insomnia drugs and the things that are, you know, and also Women just take. that we're more likely to go to the doctor. So we're more yes. likely to go to the doctor, the more likely you are to go to the doctor, the more likely somebody is to recommend some drugs for you. But mm. also women at home, think about it. Do you have painkillers in your purse and do you pop a pill every day? I have friends that definitely take a paracetamol every day or an aspirin or something just for the, a bit of pain and they pop, pop something and well, it's normal to One them. tweet that I remember that sits with me forever was a journalist who said that um, in her office there was a 25-year-old man who didn't know what ibuprofen was and that was an example of extreme male privilege because there's absolutely no way as a woman you can get through your period every month <sighs> without at some point popping an ibuprofen. So that's not true. I don't take any medication at all. You know I drink the rum. <laughs> <laughs> rum is my one and only... It is. I can it, see it in your handbag. <laughs> it's my, I have a cold... You know, I, I drink overproof white rum. I never have a pill. In I, fairness, I, I, my, uh, I was talking to the tax driver on the way in about my great-aunt who lived to 97 based on two very strong martinis at 6pm every Night. <laughs> Love her. I was going to say, my great aunt used to have a Guinness, actually. Yeah. Which, <laughs> and she lives to a very old age. So, so Rachel, do you think yeah. that we are prescribing more women drugs than ever before? So I think there's definitely been a, a conversation and that's reached, again, throughout the medical profession now around uh, benzodiazepines, um, opioid painkillers. There was a big, um, I think it was almost six months ago to a year ago now, where um, there was big press releases, big training around opioids, things like codeine, for example, mm. tramadol. Mm. And actually now the advice is very much do not prescribe unless you have to. If you are prescribing, then only for short periods of time and really limit that because we are now understanding, like you were talking about in the US, obviously around opioids and the dependence and the mm. addiction and the tolerance is a big issue. And again, I think historically these kind of drugs have been prescribed, you know, you know, in times where people were not perhaps mm. aware of that. And so there have been people on them for decades and years and years and years who are, who have got dependency issues. And, and again, there's a, there's a, um, a thing out there at the moment for doctors to try and talk to those pe patients around, you know, reducing those doses, obviously in a very supervised manner, safely, for example. So that, that's definitely part of the conversation out there now in the medical profession. And that's definitely what I'm seeing on the ground as well. Um, so How do we have those conversations perhaps with people that we know? Because I'm mm. thinking of one woman I know who is sort of the generation above us and has been popping tramadol for, I mean, certainly as long as I've known her, which is my entire life. Yeah. And, you know, I, she goes out, I go into her bedroom, she's got drawers full of this stuff. Mm. Oh, my gosh. How yeah. do we have... But, you know, from the outside, perfectly lovely, happy, functioning human being, mm. you know. It, this is just how she gets through her daily life. How do you have a conversation with somebody where you say maybe we could cut down on those. Yeah, like you say, it is a difficult conversation, especially if someone's had them for a long mm. time. And and it also needs to be done, if they are dependent, it needs to be done really safely in a supervised way. So it's not something that yeah. people should be doing off their own back without advice, for sure. That's the first thing to say. I think, again, it's probably about trying to um, help that person become aware that they are dependent. You know, that, that, that realisation that they are dependent on something, something external, something that's not in their control mm. and again sort of working out like what what does that mean for you you're kind of not giving up your power but that that kind of has, has been taken away from you that that you don't have control over needing that sort of physiologically or, or psychologically and that sometimes can make a difference 
I mean, the other thing also is to actually start talking to people about the other ways that they can cope or the other strategies they can use to manage their pain. Mm. And again, you know, that is a lot of stuff around uh, psychology, perception of pain, you know, all of those kind of psychosocial things that we don't really talk about enough and they're, they're bearing on the level of pain they're having. Things like things like exercise, things like all those kind of things which are the foundation of the sort of pyramids that we should again kind of go back to and revisit because I think sometimes we're forgetting those foundational things and we're just reaching straight towards the top of the pyramid and causing more problems in doing so. Do you think there's a cultural issue? So I remember, and I'm going to say Sex in the City and some lots of American programmes where women were popping a Xanax and there, there's mm-hmm. another one that they used to refer to that I can't remember the name of. Where it just Prozac. Be, pro, yeah, just a mm-hmm. normal thing. You take mm-hmm. one thing to wake up and you take one thing to go to sleep. Do you mm-hmm. think some of that sort of permeated this way yeah i'm sure i'm sure it did i think like you say like films media tv mm. music it all has such a big impact on our psychology doesn't it and mm. we absorb it even if we're not really aware of what we're absorbing yeah. um so i think that's definitely something i think also you know and again i'm, I'm not kind of blaming iphones or androids or, or technology but i think there is also something in our psychology now which is very much instantaneous so mm. there's a problem mm. and we want it to be sorted out now and by all means, we want to get people healthy. We want to get them. We want to get them fixed. But I think there is a sort of expectation that you know your body heals just like that. Mm. You know, it's gonna. You should be better straight away from something. And actually, the body takes its time to recover to heal properly, you know, physically as well as mentally. So mm. I think again, there's that understanding about you know that things can't always be instantaneous, and sometimes it's about sort of sitting with that and mm. working through that. And again, with that comes kind of empowerment. Comes that kind of confidence that you can recover you can manage through something but i think that's definitely something which is in the ether um which has probably contributed to that idea about popping pills Mm. yeah and I thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Adam McGill oh, here. Pleasure. It's been lovely chatting to you. Thank you. Uh, if people want to talk to you, find you on Twitter, Instagram, things like that, can they? Yeah, they can, yeah. So um, I'm on Instagram um, at Dr. Rada and then at Dr. Rada Modgill on Twitter. So, yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so pleasure. much. Coming up next, uh, would you cover yourself in glitter and put yourself on Instagram? <laughs> Our next guest <laughs> says yes. She has made a living out of it and now she's helping women with their own body insecurities get really comfortable. She is coming up next here on Badass Women's Hour XL. Badass Women's Hour XL on Talk Radio. She'll get you talking. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome back to Badass Women's RXL. Uh, we are talking all things glitter and Instagram because our next guest made her mark on Instagram by covering herself in glitter and taking amazing photos. She created the sort of, I guess, glitter boobs trend, you might call it that. Um, and she's now using her following and her skills to help other women build up their self-esteem. Uh, Sophie, welcome to Badass oh. Women's Hour. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, tell us a little bit about the glitter craze. How did that get started? Okay, so this was like three years ago now. Um, my best friend Jenna, who actually set up the Gypsy Shrine, which is a glitter company, um, she was recruiting artists to help her kind of build her brand. And it was early days. We both set up our businesses at the same time and we both helped each other the whole way. And we were at Coachella. And basically, as crude as it sounds, she just said would you be able to just take your top off and cover your boobs in glitter and take a picture and that will, you know, hopefully promote my business and hopefully get me to the next level. And was it just like an instant yes? I mean, was like, serious support you're giving her business there. I know, I mean, I was young, I was like, whatever, like, who cares? Um, and I think we both recognised early days that this was kind of before Instagram was as big as it is now mm. and we were earliest to recognize that you do need a big following to build a business especially as an independent person with no help or backing so yeah it was it was mental it was featured on Forbes it was in MTV it was on the Ellen show like it blew like it was it was mental and it's crazy that I'm still talking about it right now like (laughs) but I mean I love it like whatever (laughs) I got it I got a bit of um what can I say it was quite difficult to persuade people to eventually take me seriously as an artist and I think that's where um that's where a lot of the hardship has come. Right. But, you know, I'm there now and now <laughs> yeah. it's just a funny story. <laughs> and so now you are, so you're a painter mm-hmm. and you're now painting, well, painting women to try and help them with their body confidence. Exactly. Tell us how you do that. Okay, so this is a very, very new um, subject matter for me. Um, typically, I paint large abstract paintings and have done for about two years. Um, so I, a month ago, I flew my team out to Bali and we basically... I'm sure they loved you for that. Yeah, yeah they did. Like, why I'm, I'm why a mega has Talk tux. Radio never flown this team out to Bali? <laughs> yeah, That's I what I want to know. know. Have words, have yeah. words. Um, and basically... I have always been interested in the human form. Typically, I've not had an amazing relationship with my body, but don't necessarily want to dwell on that because um, I don't think I think the real conversation here is about helping others. And basically, what I did was um, I initially just started sketching women, and then I was looking to the internet, obviously, for images and um you know typing in naked women online like is going to get me blocked especially in bali so like i was basically said to my instagram audience guys i need some muses you've been with me the entire way like i've literally funded my entire business through instagram um not represented by a single gallery and then i basically said would you be able to send me your news send me your news <laughs> send and me news. you will 
honestly not believe the response. Like, so I went to bed that night and I woke up the next morning. I had over a thousand images. Wow. Wow. Honest, I, I, how I put this, like, I've never, I've produced abstract work in the past and I've always had this vision in mind to be a commercially successful artist. And there, I'm good with colour, I'm good with composition, but there's never really been like that kind of like story behind it. And I I guess I was absolutely blown away with the reaction, not only um, for the diversity of images. I was I was I was sent images of people with mastectomy bags, um, people with um, amputees, um, all races, all sizes, um, uh, colostomy bags. Um, it was honestly one of the most amazing experiences to kind of connect with my audience but also hear all their like stories of why they felt that it was important to share the image and why they want to be kind of immortalized through art. So did did you did you request that there was a diversity of imagery because you know asking someone to share a naked picture of them if you know that's quite a daunting oh. thing so were you very open that you wanted to or, or did it just actually by default you had that because people was, were like actually i'm really proud of my body and what it's been through and what it's done exactly and, that i mean i think the nature of my instagram anyway i have a very like intimate relationship with my followers like i'm always like sharing the highs and the lows so i think it's kind of a given that i wanted everyone right and um yeah and i guess it is like a reflection of like what i've built which is so amazing because people were so open and sharing their insecurities and wanting um, and wanting to be a part of this new campaign. So now so now you've got these thousand images. Mm-hmm. Is your goal to paint every single one of those? What's the what's the plan next? Uh, so I actually um took I've already painted a hundred of them in Bali and did a big release um oh. which was amazing. But what I plan to do with these images now is have a solo show in London on the tenth of December and exhibit all the artworks with the stories with them amazing and yeah. will the people be there the people who've sent you oh, their yeah. images uh, definitely but yeah. um like i had images from there was someone from australia from croatia i've literally just wow. flown from australia like two like i landed two hours ago oh, oh wow, wow. you're yeah. looking fresh <laughs> no i am not been on a I, right. I was gonna excuse myself before came in yeah but, no you're um, doing good <laughs> and it's 30 hours as well it's one of those cheapo ones i know i was like oh yeah it'll be fine to wait in taipei <laughs> yeah. five hours and i was like in taipei like no <laughs> um but yeah they're, they're from all around the world so i'm hoping that a lot of them will come that's amazing yeah. Do you think Instagram has been a positive force then for how women yeah. think about their bodies? Uh, I mean, you can't say yes, and like you can't mm. say an overarching yes because I don't think people have a very different relationship with Instagram. I am a firm, firm believer. If something makes you feel bad online, like you have a dis- you have a choice to like unfollow that account. So I say the people, and I really want to keep like promoting that message mm. because you don't have there's things that are in front of you every day. You can really choose. Um, so in that respect, I think it's going more towards a, a more positive angle. However, like that is another one of the reasons why I wanted to do this was because I'd been affected by by some of the you know perfect images on Instagram, like re- retouching images. Like it's a thing, and to have that all stripped away, and yeah, I think that mm. yeah, I'm trying to push for a more positive Instagram mentality. I was going to ask that question, but I also was wondering, when was the point that we fell out of love with nudes? Because if you go back through history, 
you know, some of the best paintings and sculptures yeah. were nude. So what was what was the shift? When were the nudes sort of, well, we'll put those away, we won't do those anymore, and actually anything what? like that is, is seen as not art? Uh, well, I can't actually say anything... I can't actually like, definitely say that it's now in again. Mm-hmm. I would say that from personal experience... Or non-sexual. Yeah, news. from personal yeah. experience, I still think there is a lot, there is a long way to go. Okay. Um, I don't think like we're there yet. Mm-hmm. A, um, an example would be the other day, I had one of my images reported and it was a painting of a nipple. And oh, wow. that that upset me a bit because I just thought... You know, like, have you ever been the, to the Sistine Chapel? Or, yeah, yeah, like, what what world are we living yeah, in? Like, exactly. this is this is a real thing, and um, so I don't think we're there yet. Um, it was definitely more prominent in the olden days, right? So I, yeah. I'd love to bring it back. But <laughs> I mean, just walk through the V&A and look at any of the the art. It's... Yeah, but there's always that. I mean, there's a fantastic Hannah Gadsby sketch about this, where she's like, you know, and when we were talking about Renaissance paintings and mm-hmm. Renaissance paintings, something weird ha- was happening in that time where women would just be walking down the street and their clothes would fall <laughs> off. <laughs> and they would be just doing the washing and their clothes would fall off. And that was how the painters would paint them. But the men know. too. The, you know, the men, the men didn't have that much by way of clothing <laughs> in, in the sculptures. Um, and, I, I, you know, I, it is our original form. And so I, I do hope that over time, through your art and through others' art, we can move to nude artwork that isn't always sexualized. Oh, and that's definitely. an I'm a Helmut Newton fan, always have been. But it is very sexual. Yeah. Well, not, a I, lot of it is sexual. I had a, um, a message, you know, I said I had lots of messages with the pictures. One of, one of them said, um, thank you so much for the opportunity for me to have a non sexual naked experience with my boyfriend because he took pictures of my body thought it was beautiful and he respected it and you know that was it like I thought that was an amazing message to receive that it's not always sexual do you think though that we've reached a place where you can have your naked body exposed in an exhibition or online without somebody then judging you in some way for it as you said you know when you did the glitter boobs and then suddenly you had to be like no I am actually a serious artist no (laughs) genuinely a serious artist (laughs) have we got past that point yet uh I wouldn't I wouldn't say so um definitely not but I mean we're all on a journey to make it that way right um um what have you learned about I guess the power of social media and social media for good from this experience oh that's i mean nail on the head i've learned that you can use it for absolute good um for me like typically an artist would make um their debut if you like by being represented by a gallery um galleries take 50 percent commission and that's industry standard um so for me to be able to build a career just off social media has been an amazing freeing experience i employ a team internally and haven't had to kind of rely on other people to tell my own story Mm. and i think kind of being an entrepreneur there's no better time to use instagram for good um i think as long as we're like actively thinking and kind of um checking ourselves all the time mm-hmm. to um make decisions that don't make us feel like crap yeah because yeah. that's the challenge right mm-hmm. you could because of the instagram way of things being sold quoting fingers it's it could be it's potentially easy for an artist to deviate into what would be popular mainstream and get likes versus producing what is authentically the art you want to produce oh 
A hundred percent. So when I started, um, I a, a tiny bit of background about my story. I studied business and then I was due to start a graduate scheme um, as a consultant in the city. And then I went traveling to India and there was this hostel with loads of graffiti on the wall. So I asked the hostel manager if I could paint in return for a free stay. And it was the first time I'd painted since I was at school. And I just absolutely, it's one of those moments I just fell in love. Mm. So... Oh my god, I'm jet lagged. Just referring back to that question again. Instagram creating the art that you want to create versus yeah. creating yeah, art right. that gets likes. Yeah. So that in in India, what I painted was a cow um, because they're sacred there, yeah. like a multicolored cow. And then I posted that to Facebook, so it's always been through social media. And my friends and family were like, "Didn't realize you could paint. Could you paint me like a lion in oh. these colors?" So commercial as the commercial side of being an artist is so important because I didn't want to be poor mm. like I wanted yeah. To, yeah. I did a business degree and I really wanted to like make a go yeah. but like I'm just I, yeah. I don't want to be mm-hmm. so I had to, but you have to go through things to get your name out there mm. and for me it was painting animals I was getting huge demand <laughs> and then I had to put a stop to it because you know it wasn't making me happy anymore and that's not why I decided to become an artist in the first place mm. it was because I wanted complete flexibility in my life right so mm. then I decided to go on abstracts which have been the best simply the best decision I ever made however making that transition was difficult because by then I already had a team of one and you know like life's expensive so transitioning to another subject matter and not necessarily having the demand Mm. is a very scary place to be and it's where I'm at right now Mm. with the transition to nudes Mm. and it's so important to think as an artist like what am I trying to do I'm trying to like add value Mm. to society so by doing that, to do that, I have to do what makes me happy and tell my own story. And this is why I've gone down the new aspect. It's a massive risk. And now we have a team of eight. But, you know, I've got to, even if it means, you know. Well, I think it's going to be a huge it. success. I've yeah. had a look think? at them and they are fantastic. Paint oh, me. I, hate I love it. <laughs> oh. um, if you want to see more of Sophie's work, you can find her at Sophie T, T E A, Sophie T Art on Instagram. Uh, Sophie, we've loved having you. Thank oh. you so much for coming in. Thank You'll be at Jet Lagged. Uh, we are very appreciative of your efforts. Oh, no. Thank you so much for having me. This has been the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton. If you want to hear more from us, you can come follow us on social media at Badass Women's Hour HR um, or leave us a review and tell us how much you love us. We really need to feel the love. Five stars should do it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
it. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.